You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. Happy Mother's Day. It's good to see you all. If you're a mother, thank you. All of you have a mother, and if they're still living, hopefully you've got them a card or some flowers. If you don't have anything to give them, take the Bible in front of you and give that as your gift to them, and you can take credit for it too. But if they don't have one, we'd love for them to get one. My name is Benjamin, and I am unqualified and not normal, uh, not natural at talking to people, Uh, but... Look what God can do. And so to you, who would say, I am not natural and I am not gifted at this, well, the Lord can use me. The Lord can use you in whatever way he wants to. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 16. We're going to read it together first. We're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights up a lamp and puts it under a basket but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they will see your good works and will give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, as we've been studying the first 12 verses of your sermon, we realize it wasn't just a bunch of words put together just for the sake of speaking. We see that with each word, you had intent, you had desire uh, in us, in your believers. And God, now you're going to tell us why you said those first 12 verses, what the Beatitudes are for, what your desire of them inside of us is to do in this world of darkness. And God, uh, Everyone would know that I am not living these out perfectly, that I'm often not salt and I'm often not light, but that's not an excuse not to desire it more, not to seek after it more. And so I pray for any who are in here who realize after we, at the end of this, that they don't stack up, that this isn't manifesting themselves, uh, yourself through them, that they would simply humble themselves and would pick up with you. Uh, But Lord, they need an open heart right now. And so would you open their hearts and would you help us to look at your words and let it have use in us and change us. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So the first two weeks, uh, we looked at the Beatitudes, the famous blesseds. Blessed are you when you... 
have a humble spirit. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you when you mourn and so on and so forth. And we saw that God's intent was to talk to believers, uh, specifically people who had followed him, who were already following him, uh, not the crowds down in the valley, but those, those people that had gathered around him on the top of the hill, that this was a message to believers. And his desire was that he would manifest himself through their lives, that these uh, things that he is going to talk about, these character qualities, would be manifested in believers and followers of Jesus Christ. That it wouldn't so much be in what they said and wouldn't be so much in what they did, uh, but more in who they became. That character was key in the kingdom of God. Now he's shifting from giving an explanation of what he wants manifested in them into the reason he wants it manifested in them. He is going to talk to them about their influence, that as a Christian allows these things to overtake their character, they become influencers in a dark world. That as a character is transformed, others will see, and it will influence them, pointing them to the gospel, that those people down in the valley, Jesus is saying, would be blessed by you disciples who are already following me, that you would become a blessing to them. And not only that, for the, those living in darkness, but also for those living in the kingdom, that as we manifest these things, as Jesus lives through us, the church becomes a great place. And not a dysfunctional place. And I'm, I'm sure some of you have, have been in churches before and spent time in churches where it's a dysfunctional place. Uh, where people aren't loving each other. People aren't speaking truth into each other's lives. People aren't encouraging each other. People aren't coming along each other in their lives and faith. That's not God's desire. But in order for us to experience the benefits of that, we actually have to be living that. We actually have to be in the kingdom. Uh, when Rebecca and I were, uh, this is about five, six years ago, uh, Rebecca and I were invited by some friends to go to Aruba. They had a, um, a, a cottage in uh, Aruba, these friends of ours. And so they invited us to go. And uh, one time we were out, we'd go for these big long walks and we were, we were like, oh, there's where all the hotels are. Now, I've been to Cuba and said an all-inclusive before, and maybe you have. And like that's like your entry-level all-inclusive, right? Like you go for under a thousand bucks and eat and have your flight, uh, flights and your hotel and everything. Aruba, not so. Like to stay at these hotels is way out of my price range. It's where rich people go to vacation at these hotels. And so we're walking past and I'm like, let's go in and see what it's like. She's like, but, but we're not, we're not staying here. And I was like, you just got to pretend like you are supposed to be there. So just follow me and let's act like we, we belong there. And so we go in and we come into this, this beautiful entryway and it's like marble and it's so exquisite and it just speaks of wealth. And we march through and we go through the restaurant and we're just looking through, just strutting through, acting like we belong there. And then we go out to the, the pool areas and it's just like pools I've never seen before. And then we walk along the beach 
And it's just amazing. And I'm watching. They've got security. Like, this isn't, this isn't Schlubbubville. Uh, this is like, they've got security and they're watching for people. So everyone's got these wristbands on. And so I'm just walking like this. And Rebecca's um, like, cover up your arms with your uh, purse and your sash. And so we're just walking through. And I can see them. And, and, and they're looking at me. But, but they're, they're believing it. They're believing it. But you know what? The most we could do was sit on the beach for a few minutes. We didn't get to receive any of the benefits that a person staying there did. We didn't get to eat the food. We didn't get to swim in the pool. We didn't get to see the shows because we didn't belong there. And a lot of the times we can come to church and not actually belong there because we actually don't follow the king. And we can't receive the benefits of being part of a family that God is trying to create unless we actually enroll ourselves in God's program and actually are saved by him. And so with that in mind, let's go into his text today. Verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And notice he doesn't say you have the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you can give the salt to the earth or you know the salt of the earth. He says you, you half a dozen or a dozen or two dozen people that are following me. You are the salt of the earth. You who have left your regular jobs and your regular lifestyles and are following me now, you are the salt of the earth. Not them down there in the valley, but you are the salt of the earth. Salt is an extremely important substance. Uh, wars have been fought over salt. Empires have made uh, their, a lot of their money off of salt. Why? Because salt is vital. You cannot live without salt. That's why they pack it into all of our food, right? And so, so you can live without sugar. Uh, you can live without meat, the vegetarians would tell me. Uh, you can live without uh, vegetables, I would tell the vegetarians. Uh, uh, but you can't live without salt, it is essential for the human body to work correctly. Uh, and, and salt in Jesus' time was used to keep corruption from growing, uh, right? To keep something from rotting, they would salt it. And so uh, salt keeps meat from spoiling. It keeps rot from spreading. It preserves something. That's why we use it as a preserve, and some of you use it for your uh, preserves. And Jesus looked at all the masses uh, down in the valley. He saw them coming. And, and I picture him seeing the rot of sin and of brokenness that sin has brought into their lives, just destroying their lives from the inside out. And he's telling them, he turns to the disciples and said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the thing that will preserve the rot of sin and evil. As I have cleansed you, you will go into this world and you will be something that pushes back the evil and the rot and the destruction. As you go into your homes, as you go into your workplaces, as you serve in the government, as you live in your community, you are something that preserves my goodness in this broken society as I live throughout your lives. And we can't change a person. That's evident. We cannot change a person as hard as we try, as good as we are to them. Only Jesus can save a person. Uh, But when we establish in our homes 
a, a place that glorifies God. When we, when we live with Christ first, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness in our job places, uh, we start to become a place that pushes back the evil. Uh, when we serve in our children's schools, volunteering and showing mercy and love to these little children, we become a place that pushes back the evil and the darkness. You know, you can just see that. If you really open your eyes and look at any society, any country that really had Christianity established, like uh, it really, there was a large group of people at one time that really uh, lived in this nation, you would see that that nation was most likely a nation of freedom, of chance, uh, of ability that anyone could have a life of prosperity. You can see that in the U.S. It's a perfect example. That the Puritans, this group that desired to have to live pure for God, they came over from England in the 17th century, and much of the world was miserable and, and a hard place to live. And these men and women came over to establish a place where people could live freely glorifying God. And no matter what you say, you cannot disagree with the fact that the U.S., regardless of what it's become now, was at one time and still provides the most opportunity, the most freedom, whether you're black, white, Asian, for people to have uh, a good life. That's why people flock there. You don't see people flocking to Sudan or, or flocking to Iran, right? People flock there because there, there's an ability because of the goodness that Christians had provided to thrive. And as there's less and less believers allowing God to manifest himself in their lives, you can see the, the evil starts to crowd in. And we can see that happening right now in our own country. And then he says this. So he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus isn't talking about a Christian who is saved and then loses his salvation because we believe uh, that when a person is truly reborn, when a person truly repents of their sin, when a person truly follows Jesus Christ, they're saved once and for all. And sometimes people think they are, but they really aren't. Uh, but what Jesus is talking about is a Christian who loses their hunger and thirst for righteousness, for a Christian who uh, loses their mercy for people, for a Christian who no longer walks with God first in their life, but he's fifth and sixth and seventh, uh, for a, a Christian that no longer walks with a humble spirit, but walks with prideful and arrogant spirit. Uh, they become, as they shed their saltiness, worthless, useless to the kingdom of God. They no longer demonstrate a supernatural God living inside of them. Uh, they no longer taste or smell or look or act or live like those living in a supernatural kingdom. When I was uh, studying this, the, I learned that the Greek word for taste, so when it says uh, that if salt should lose its taste. It's only used four times in the New Testament. And I'm going to give you what they translated into each time. First time it says to turn foolish. Next time is to be tainted. Then to become tasteless. That's this one. And to be made useless. So you see the context of what this Greek word is? It's something that at one time had some goodness, but it became tainted. It became foolish. It became useless for the kingdom of God. They no longer have an effective purpose in their life. It's like dead religion, 
right? It's like, it's what happens when a church, which is once following God, which is once lifting up Christ's name, which is once using the Bible as their guide to life and faith, says, you know what? To please the world, we knew to allow a little bit of this sin or a little bit of this sin. Or they're like, you know what? Uh, we're so good that we forget the mercies and the grace of God and they become legalistic and dogmatic. Like you can go on either extreme, but that's what happens. When a church loses its saltiness, they tend to go to the extremes in order to, to make up for it. And I think that's why so many Canadians walk, around, walk by churches every day and have no use for it and walk by Christians every day and have no use for them. Because the stats show us, and we can argue it any way we want, but the stats show us that uh, as a church loses its saltiness, so it either goes hard left or hard right, less and less people are interested in going to hear what they have to say. That's simply what stats show us. That the more they compromise on this way, the more they make up extra rules and they say these are really important, the less the unsaved world says, I don't have, you have nothing that I need in my life. That's what happens when a country or a family, as, as he says, throws it out, right? Don't miss Jesus' strong words. It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under feet. To be thrown out means like you get rid of it. It's no longer of any use. And to be trampled under one's feet means you don't even notice it. It's not even worth stepping over, right? And and hasn't that what's happened in our society for a lot of the church and a lot of Christianity? Society's deemed it no longer of any value to them. And so they don't even notice it as they trample over it and make fun of it and laugh at it and make fun of our our little rituals and, and the things that are so important to us and yet have no bearing on Christ and what he says how to live by in his church. So it's not enough to recite the Beatitudes. We must live them. We must let them live in us in order to become the salt. Now here's a disclaimer. I never passed grade 10 science. I got by grade 9 science because that's when we dissected the frogs and I thought that was a great old time. And we played with Bunsen burners and and I think we stuck the frog in the Bunsen burners. But grade 10 didn't pass it. So when I was studying and learning about um, salt, you might like, this is is not rocket science. I learned this week that salt is made up of two compounds. Did you know that? Sodium and chlorine. That makes up salt in its natural form. And on their own, they don't serve us a real valid purpose. Chlorine on its own is that thing that you see in bleach, you know, when you smell it and you're like, poof, right? It can become poisonous. You drink enough of it and you'll die, right? But, um, But when it's combined with sodium, it becomes salt. And the gospel or a Christian We can often be one and not the other. And one without the other, love without truth, or truth without love, isn't a useful Christian. It's a saltless Christian. But love with truth is the salt that the Christian needs. And so if we're all love and we stand on nothing and God is a God who loves everything and anything and he's cool with everything, if we become like that, then we're just sort of 
flighty and, and just sort of weak, right? And we stand for no truth. And who needs that? If a God who changes to our every whim and, and it's just a God who, who allows us to make up uh, him in our own minds, then who needs that? But if we become all truth with no love, then we're mean and we're, we, the gospel becomes offensive, right? Because they don't want anything to hear, but they don't want to hear about what you have to say because they know you don't actually love them or care about them. So just as salt requires both compounds, a Christian requires both love and truth to be the salt that this world needs. It's just like parenting, right? <clears throat> if we're all truth with our kids, but they don't see love, they're going to reject it. If we're all love, but no truth, they're just going to walk all over us, right? <laughs> And so as our children see both love and truth, as they see that in us by the way we treat our spouse, the gospel does its work. As they feel it in our love for them and yet our discipline that we we care about them, we're interested in their lives, we take the time to know them, and yet we'll still discipline them because we don't want them to be disciplined later in life by the law. And they'll taste it as they interact with us, the saltiness of Christ in us, will rub off in their lives. Then verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. If I can get somebody to kill the lights, all of the lights, that would be great. Thank you. So what good is a light? If I had turned this flashlight on when all the lights were on, it wouldn't have shone on anything, right? A light is only good when there's darkness, A light is useless when everything is light. And that's the primary use of light is to illuminate something. And so we know that in the beginning, it was all darkness, right? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God created, separated light from the darkness, right? And we know that in heaven, there will be only light. Because that's where God lives. And there will be no darkness because Christ will be our light. But we also know in hell there will be no light. That's why nobody can see each other. There isn't going to be a party. It's going to be blackness. And everyone's going to be groping for anything. But they'll never be able to find it. But while we live on this earth, we are the light. Christ in us, we are the light in the darkness. And, and much of the world lives in darkness. People are just blindly going through life. That's why, like, you ever watch the leaders of our nations and, the, and all the smartest people, and it's just like, wow, you get it wrong so often that you think you're right, right? It's just like you're, you're groping through the darkness, and, and you grab a hold of something, and you're like, yeah, this is a truth we can trust in, and then it busts, and, and they go on to the next one, and people are like, oh, I hope they get it right this time. But they're just groping in the darkness, In the darkness, you often can't see your own filth, right? If you cover me in mud and and filth, but I'm in a pitch black forest, I'm most likely not going to see the filth covering me until the light illuminates it. And that's what a Christian does. A a Christian illuminates what's there. A, A Christian is, as Christ fills them, is a person that draws those living in the darkness to them. They can see the light from a distance, and they're drawn to it. They desire it. They come to the, to the outskirts of the light and they peer in and they say, who, who are you and how, why are you the way you are? And that's when we point them to the one who brings them into the light, Christ. 
And you know what I've noticed about different Christians is that as certain Christians I've noticed over, over the time I've been a Christian, as they allow God to change them, as they walk with these Beatitudes, as they, as they walk in a submitted spirit to Christ, in God's, author, God's word is their authority, and, and, they, and they, they mourn over their own personal sin, and they're always not pointing fingers at other people, and they walk in humility in a way that, that demonstrates that they don't think they're better than everyone, and people feel comfortable around them, and they hunger and thirst for righteousness, and, and they're merciful. You know what I notice happens? People are drawn to them. That's what I notice. There's a certain group of, of people I notice in every church that, that they just draw people towards them. But it's not them, it's Christ in them. They're often the ones serving with love. Uh, they're often the ones investing in others. They're often the ones and not asking others to serve them, but saying, how can I serve others? And what happens? Their people are drawn to them. But then I notice that there's, there's another group that sometimes you find in church. Uh, they're, they're not invested in people's lives. They're more looking at how can people serve me? They, they don't serve other people. And they don't allow God to change them. They always have a reason why. Do you know what I notice about them? People aren't drawn to them. And because people aren't drawn to them, they tend to be the ones who complain the most in a church. That's what I've noticed. They're, all, they're often the ones at a meeting or whatever who give up, stand up and give a complaint but don't offer any sort of solution or investment personally. That's the light. That's what we're talking about. With intensity, as we get saved and then we, we grow in Christ, our intensity picks up and, and Christ starts to br- shine brighter. And then he picks up again and he shines even brighter in our lives. And people see it and they come flocking. Yeah, you can turn on the lights. Thank you. You know why the Pharisees hated Jesus? Because he was the light. And the Pharisees thought they were pretty good until they met Jesus. And then when they were next to Jesus, they realized they live in darkness. And because they live in darkness, and, and Christ showed them what they really were stained with, and people saw it and no longer respected the Pharisees and could see the difference, they hated Jesus. John 3, 6, John 3, 19 says this, and this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear of his, their deeds will be exposed. But whoever practices the truth comes into the light so that he may be clearly shown to all who are around what God has accomplished in them. Did you get that? That as they practice the truth, the Beatitudes, as they say, God, humble me. God, change me. God, I want to be a part of what you're doing in this world. God does that in them. And everyone takes notice and sees something that only God could accomplish in them. See, you can't make these things happen to you, but you can prepare your hearts and your lives for them. You can desire them. You can seek after them, and God will do them in you. Then he says, a city cannot, or sorry, a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. So Jesus shifts from talking about singular people to a group of people, a group of people called Christians, a bunch of lights, a city, right? And, and so here he's talking about when a church no longer manifests these things that God, Jesus has been talking about, uh, their lights go down. 
and when their lights go down, they become like a city without power. Have you ever seen a city without power? I've seen a city without power. Kabul, the capital city of Afghanistan, I was spent um, much of 2004 there. That's a city that doesn't have much electricity. Except for the wealthier areas, there isn't street lights, there isn't electricity. People still use lamps. People still burn coal or fire. Much hasn't changed in 2,000 years in in Kabul. And, And so it's like a city that at night you can't even really see. Our our base was outside of the city, just outside of the city, by the airport. But when we looked in it at night, you couldn't see much of it. When you contrasted it against the sky, you could see the building structures, but you couldn't really see what we would see when we look at a city. And that's Satan's desire, that churches become churches without lights burning, without the Holy Spirit magnifying Christ in them. And and I don't think Satan necessarily likes persecution because you know what persecution usually does? Uh, it's, it's like Satan's last resort when he's ticked. But persecution usually weeds out the people who are just like casual Christians. And it, and it really like electrifies those who are really following Christ. So it actually works against Satan. I think it's probably what he does when he's ticked because the church is doing well. But what Satan's tactics in the West is, what he's been successfully doing is to slowly, like a dimmer switch, turn down the lights in the hearts of Christians, a little bit at a time, generation after generation, get them so focused on the world, get them so focused on building their empires, get them so worried about, I'm going to offend somebody with what I say, get them so focused on how they feel, that over time, the lights go out, and they become a church that has no lights, a group of Christians that just follow a bunch of traditions and religions or and, and things that they don't even really even know why they're doing it. That's what happens when you become a worldly church or a truthless church or a selfish church or a bickering church. But God is interested in our character. <clears throat> and when God is not changing our character, he is not growing in us. And when he's not growing in us, he's not shining his light in us. But when we are a church that really focuses on God first, then you know what happens? We start to shine brightly. We become a church that starts to love each other, and people take notice. We we become a church that starts to love other people that are messy, and people notice. We become a church that believes something that is foundational, and we can't be rocked off of that rock by the pressures of life. We become a place that is a delight to be in. We become a place where people can come and receive mercy. We shine brighter and brighter, and Christ intenses or turns up the switch. And there is a group of you in this church that have really been letting Christ change you, and you have been shining brightly. And you know what I hear in the community is that people are taking notice in, in the way some of you are living, in the way some of you are showing love, and the way some of you are walking in truth. You are allowing God to crank up the light switches at Calvary and people are taking notice and people are coming here knowing they can come in their current state, but they're knowing that they will hear the truth of God and not the opinions of man. And that's through a group of you. But know this, that just as people come to the light, those who hate the light 
will get more aggressive. And I know some of you have had things said about you and rumors spread about you and lies said about you. But be encouraged because Jesus said, if they hate you, know that they hated me first. So you're doing good. And we have to understand that as Christ's drawing, uh, approaching gets nearer, the darkness will get more intense. We can see that happening in our world. The hearts of many will go cold. Nations will war against each other. People will take more for themselves and have less mercy for other people. But it is also an opportunity to increase our dependence on Christ, which will magnify his light. And as the darkness grows brighter, our ability to shine grows more intense. Then he says, no one who lights a lamp and put no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket but rather on a lampstand and it will give light to all who are in the house now he switches back to singular christians a lamp <clears throat> he's he's giving that reference and so going back to kabul when we would patrol that city at night we would patrol in our labs um, or in in our g-wagons and um, sometimes i'd be up in what's called the gunner's hatch um a century to make sure nobody's sneaking up to plant something on the side. And we're elevated about 15 feet. And so it's really eerie driving through a city with no electricity. Uh, when I say city, I mean like these mud buildings. A lot of them aren't concrete or nor wood. They're these mud buildings, and they don't have windows like we do with window panes. They have a window, but there's no glass. And, and, and so you can see into people's houses. Like literally, I can remember very vividly, I would look into people's windows and I would see, you know what? A lamp that would burn through the night, just dimly. It would never really go out. They would leave it on. And you know what I would see around the, the lamp? The people sleeping. Sometimes a half dozen, sometimes a dozen people just sleeping around. Moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, kids, they all sleep together. And when we think of house, we don't think of bedroom, uh, you know, five bedrooms, bathroom, kitchen, living room. It's one room. That's why Jesus says, no one lights a lamp and puts it on their basket, but rather on a lampstand. So it gives light to all who are in the house. Because in his days, most people lived in a one room house. The whole family sleeps in corners. They eat in the middle of the room. They go to the bathroom in a bucket or some sort of hole. That's the way most people live. And so if there's a lamp burning, it really is casting its light on the whole room. Not much has changed in the Middle East in 2,000 years. And so a man or a woman who lives in humility, who desires righteousness, who gives mercy, uh, they cannot be ignored. Their light will shine on everyone that they come into contact with in their homes, in their workplaces, in their church. The goodness of Christ will be casted upon everyone. And and some people will love it and be drawn to it, like we were talking about, and some people will hate it and run from it. One more story from, from that time over there is, as we would patrol, it's very eerie. Um, like I said, it's creepy. It's like something out of a, a movie. Um, People will dump their waste in the streets. So there's no garbage service, except maybe in the very wealthy parts. So people dump their waste in the streets. They throw dead animals in the streets that they've killed, uh, sometimes dead people in the street. And you know what their cleanup service is? Wild dogs, rats, and snakes. 
That's what their cleanup service is. At night, the wild dogs come out in packs and they roam through the city and they eat the dead things. And you know what else comes out? The rats. The rats come out and eat the dead things and the snakes follow after the rats to eat the rats. And so as we'd be patrolling sometimes, the headlights of the vehicles would cast uh, the light on something dead. And at that something dead, rats would be scurrying around. You know what the rats would do when they'd see the light? They'd turn with their beady eyes and you'd see it in the reflection and they'd scurry away because they hate the light. And that's the way some people will be as they come in contact with you shining the light of Christ on them. They'll scurry and they may even screech at you too. Then verse 16, he says, in the same way, so let your light shine upon, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Going back three weeks ago, I said that the purpose of God's uh, Sermon on the Mount, of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, is that he would turn us into signposts that light up and point people to Christ, that we would be supernatural signposts. And so as we wrestle through God's words, now that we see the point as we become signposts, we would influence others to turn to Christ. We have to ask ourselves, are we really salt? Are we really light? And only you can really answer that question. Are you salt? Do you preserve evil? Do you become a safe place where goodness can grow? Are you light? Do you draw people to you? Do you stand on both love and truth? And and nobody's going to do it perfectly, myself included. But if you can look at your life and say, ah, I'm really not salt or I'm really not light or I used to be, but my light switch has gone way down. Jesus directs you to go back to the start of the Beatitudes, to verses 1 to 12, right? Because he's just saying when you allow these things to become, uh, to overtake you, the effect is going to be you're going to become salt or light. And so you have to go back. And what I really want you to walk away with as, as I close is, is this. Am, am I allowing these things to manifest themselves in me? Because remember, we talked about they're progressive. One leads to another. So you start with, do I have a poor spirit? Am I willing to be ruled by God? Am I submitted to God, his word, uh, his desire of authority? Or do I want to do things in the world? If you, if you can't even start with that one, you have to ask yourself, am I even a follower of Christ? Because a follower of Christ is somebody who submits their life to Christ, who repents of their sin, who determines to follow God. And then you have to go to the second one. Do I mourn over my own personal sin? Or I'm always focused on other people's sin. But I can't really recognize. I know I'm not perfect, but I can't really notice anything in my life. God directs you to mourn over your own personal sin. And then when, he, when a person who is humble, uh, when a person mourns over their own sin and is ruled by Christ, they take on a humble spirit. Are you a person that people feel comfortable around? Not, not comfortable around in that you'll just allow them to be in their dysfunction, but not in a, a prideful people, you know, people with puffed up shoulders and who think they're so good and, and, and who stick their finger in your chest. People don't feel comfortable around them. They don't want to be around prideful people. But a person who is humble in spirit can be rich, can be powerful, can be very smart, but yet people feel valued around them. Is that you? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do you just want more of what the world is offering? 
Do you give mercy to those who maybe don't deserve mercy, uh, but you don't squash them every time and make them feel guilty for their imperfections? You give to them the same mercy that as God has given to you. Uh, are you pure in heart? Are you focused on God first? Not perfectly, but do you have a spirit that says, God, search me and know me and see if there is anything unclean in me? Are you a peacemaker? Do you look to make peace with others through sharing the gospel, through mediation and through reconciliation? Or are you a person that is constantly in conflict with the people around you? Are you willing to suffer for your faith? Or are you just going to skip out the minute things get hard? These are the things that I think if you can look and say, my life really isn't, I'm not really salt and light, you need to go back and to start praying through these every day, get up and read these. God, manifest in me a pure heart. God, I want to hunger and thirst for the things of your kingdom. Go back to these things. Focus on these things, allowing God to do these things in you. And you will simply become salt and light. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Well, Lord, I... Thank you so much that you're not a God who squashes me. As I said to the, uh, somebody coming in today, uh, you treat me better than I deserve because I deserve uh, not good things with the way I've lived my life. But you are a God who's willing to work with me today in my failures. And so, God, here we are. I don't think people have been coming to this church for more than three weeks. They, they definitely don't come because they just want to hear light and fluffy things. They're coming because they want to hear how you desire them to live and what you want to do in their lives. And so, God, I pray that you would show each person in their life where they need to submit in to you and, and where you need to take over more and where they need to allow you access, God. <clears throat> we want to be Christians who are salt. We want to be Christians who are light. We want to be a church, Lord, um, that isn't known by its numbers, that isn't known by its fanciness or its hipness or its, its steeped in religion, uh, but we are a church who loves and who stands on truth. We can only make ourselves accessible to you, God, but we ask you would do what we can't do. Bless these people as they go and we celebrate uh, our mothers. Uh, Lord, thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you leave, make sure you say hello to somebody you have never said hello to. And if you need prayer, I will be up here to pray for you. See you later. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.